Good morning. You guys doing okay? Good? <laughs> Last week I bragged on my video team. I mean, that video is breathtaking. Beautiful. Uh, they built all that, animated that themselves, and drew it. Good stuff. So glad you guys are here this morning. Starting a new book of the Bible. Before we get to that, though, if you didn't make it out Friday, we had a really, really good prayer night here. We had about 1,500 people just at this campus show up and pray for about an hour and a half. And yeah, I had people from... Our other campuses were full with people praying. It was really, really good. Just got done with a, a 40-day fast. If you're new here, we do that every year. That's both wonderful and awful kind of simultaneously. And uh, But we just wrapped that up. And that's a good way to start off the year. 40 days of fast and a prayer night. It's just a good way to kind of launch into a new year. And um, so if you took part in those things, thank you. I hope they were a blessing. I hope you enjoyed them. I hope they were good for you. And uh, we just end a long book of the Bible from the Old Testament. I can't even recall how long we were in 1 Samuel. I enjoyed it. Uh, it was just a long book of the Bible. And we're moving into the New Testament into a very short, but very important, very pivotal book in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, right after First and Second Corinthians in the New Testament, you have Galatians. It's only six chapters, short, but, but punchy. That's a good word, right? Very punchy. There's a lot of extremely important principles and, and foundations of the Christian faith in the book of Galatians. And shockingly, I don't know why, I've never taught it in the last 15 years. I've taught 36, 37 books of the Bible. For some reason, I've never taught this one. And so I'm looking forward to it. And um, I think you guys will will enjoy it. I've enjoyed studied it, studying it so far and putting these lessons together, but um, hopefully you'll enjoy it as well. So Here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna give you a little bit of context, a little bit of background here in a second, but before we get to that, here's kind of our, our target today. Here's what we're gonna be talking about. And we're gonna be talking about this, this idea of salvation by grace through faith virtually the whole time we're in Galatians. But here's what we're gonna talk about specifically today. We're gonna to establish, if you've never heard this, this is very, very important, maybe you've heard it, but you've heard it kind of distorted or misconstrued. We're gonna clarify it hopefully that we are saved by grace through faith. There's nothing you and I can do to earn salvation, okay? We're gonna talk about that today. And, and another thing we're gonna kind of add on to that though is, well, how do we know that we have been saved by grace through faith? A lot of people walk around and say they're saved. Well, how do you know that you're saved? How do you feel confident that you have been saved by Jesus Christ? And we're gonna talk about that a little bit today as well, okay? So if you have a Bible, again, I told you where we are in the New Testament, Everything will be up on the big screen behind me. Everything will be on the notes handouts that you received when you walked in. If you have a smartphone, um, the, the Experience Community app, click on Sermon Notes. You should have everything ready to rock, ready to go. Good, cool. Everyone's good. The weather's supposed to be decent today. It's supposed to be like 64 degrees and sunny today. That excites no one except for me. That makes me very happy. Yes, yes, sun, right? So... Anyways, let me pray. We'll dive into this. We'll get into some context, some history, and we'll do all of chapter one, which will not take us that long at all, okay? All right. Lord, we love you. We thank you. God, thank you for everyone in this room this morning. God, I, I thank you, God, that the room is full. Thank you, Lord, that people take it upon themselves, God, to make it a priority to be at church. God, it's very, very important, and we, we thank you for that. Lord, we pray not only for our church this morning, we pray for every church in our city that is teaching your word we pray for our other campuses, the churches in those areas, God. And we pray, Lord, that as we study a little bit today and um, as we get into some very, very important fundamentals of the Christian faith, God, we just pray that it's a blessing to you and we pray that it honors you, God, and we pray that it draws us closer to you, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, a little bit of context because context is very, very important. First, the author of this book of the Bible, the Apostle Paul, was the author of about 65, 70% of the entire New Testament. So a, a pretty pivotal individual in the history of Christianity. He was a Jew. He was born in what is modern day Turkey. But even though he was a Jew, this is important, he also had Roman citizenship. And you may say, well, why should we care about that? Because when you read the New Testament, there are several times that Paul is afforded some luxuries and, and some, some uh, freedoms that most Jews are not given to. And that gives him not only an escape from death on several occasions, it gives him a door into areas that other people wouldn't have access to, him being a Roman citizen. So that's important. Paul was an extremely intelligent man, formally educated. He was a religious leader. He was a Pharisee. 
Now, if you've ever watched uh, The Passion of the Christ or watched The Chosen, I don't think The Chosen has gotten into this, uh, this side of it yet, but, but if you've ever read the Gospels, the Pharisees were the legalistic Jewish leaders that called for Christ to be crucified. Paul was a part of that group until his dramatic conversion about two years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, about AD 35. Now, Paul mostly ministered to people who weren't Jewish. Um, biblically speaking, there's, there's really only two people in the world, Jews and, and, and everyone else. And Paul's mission by God was to minister to, to all the other people outside of Israel, okay? So this took him all over the Roman Empire. And oddly enough, uh, he was eventually killed. He was eventually executed by maybe one of history's most insane leaders ever, Caesar Nero in about 68 AD. Paul was beheaded along with Peter who was crucified upside down and a lot of Christians that were persecuted during this time because uh, Nero lit the Roman Empire on fire, blamed it on the Christians and it gave him license to start killing a lot of prominent Christians of the, of the first century, Paul being one of those, okay? Now the setting for this letter is not a specific city. This letter was written around 49 AD and it was to a region. So it was a series of churches. So if you were to look at a, a, a map of modern day Turkey, the territory of Galatia was kind of like an S that kind of snaked through what is modern day Turkey. So it wasn't a city, it was a region with, with a bunch of cities in it and a bunch of churches in it. Uh, the Galatians were, were mostly Celtic immigrants. So you have the, the, the distant relatives of Larry Bird, Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale, those guys. Man, you 40-year-old dads who liked basketball back in this golden era, you like that joke. It's a good joke. It, that was, it wasn't a good joke. But anyways, the Galatians were mostly Celtic who had migrated out of their homeland into this area of modern-day Turkey because of persecution from the Romans. Now, unfortunately, there was no escaping the Roman Empire because virtually the entire known world at that time was controlled by the Roman Empire. So it was still a Roman province, okay? Just a little bit of history about who the people are receiving this letter. Now, the purpose of this letter, most likely, all the churches that received this letter that we're going to study for the next couple of weeks were churches that Paul helped start. And he would foster them and he would mature them. He would travel around, but he would write them letters, basically checking in on how they're doing and correcting them if they made mistakes. And so over time, what was happening is false teachers that we're going to talk about today, false teachers would come in and they would undermine or they would contradict, we're going to call it Paul's gospel. It's the gospel about Jesus Christ, but Paul was the one who delivered it. And they were saying the exact opposite of what he was saying. Now, here's where uh, kind of the crux of the rub is, where, where the contradiction came. The false teachers were teaching that in order for new Christians to be saved, right, mostly Greeks, Romans, Gentiles, not Jews, for them to be saved, they had to observe the law of Moses, the Old Testament law. Now that directly contradicted what Paul is going to tell us, that we are not saved by the law, we are saved by grace through faith. And that is kind of the, the thesis, if you will, even though that actually comes from Ephesians, another letter that he wrote, that's kind of the thesis, that salvation by grace through faith is kind of the, 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 the baseline that we're going to be hanging out in the book of Galatians, okay? So, let me, I'm going to break this up into three parts today, and the first one being very, very short. Let's read a little bit, and let's go back and let's talk about it, okay? Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so it doesn't sound like there's much in that, but this is dramatically different than a lot of the, uh, uh, not all of them, but most of the other letters that Paul wrote. Most of the time when Paul would write a letter to a church or a group of churches, there would be a, a, a softer, gentler, um, 
more kind of, of, of loving opening to these letters. Hey, I long to see you. I miss you. I will be coming your way. I'm so proud of you. Things of this nature would typically open up Paul's letters. Not so much in this letter. Just kind of gets right to the point. Um, typically in, in his letters, all of his letters, there is a, a body of kind of ethical content. What that means is you have, an, you have an opening and then Paul basically says, this is what Jesus wants us to do. This is how we are to live. Okay, that's the body of it. And then there's a closing. This letter is built a little bit different. This is called a rebuke letter. Doesn't sound as, as fun, right? Is the other letters, but it's a rebuke letter because people had failed not only to follow Paul's instruction, but they were foolishly changing their mind about the true gospel. Now, here's the thing about a rebuke like this. Paul had a strong relationship with the people that he was rebuking. And we have to have a strong relationship if we are going to rebuke someone. So what that means is this, we have to earn the right to be able to tell people that they are living wrong. That means that it's not good for Christians to walk into a restaurant and be like, all right, which one of you is having sex outside of marriage? Wrong, 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 wrong. This doesn't work. You're not gonna be very popular in that restaurant. So what would be different is, is if we build relationships with people and over time as trust accumulates between the two of us, then I have the license, I have the freedom, right? I have the, the, the right to speak into their life and say, hey, do you know that this thing that you're doing contradicts the word of God? And we earn the right to speak that rebuke. That's what Paul had done, okay? So Paul starts off, he says, Paul, an apostle, and he is basically establishing his credentials for having the right to speak this rebuke to these people. So an apostle by definition is one, there's very few true apostles. An apostle is someone by definition, a biblical definition that had direct contact with Jesus and was directly commissioned by Jesus himself to do a particular work. So Paul immediately cites, I'm an apostle. I had direct contact with Jesus. It was after his resurrection and I was directly called to do this work. He was establishing this because people were questioning his authority. Now here's the thing about questioning authority. We do need to be careful about titles. So if you and I know in this room that the title of apostle has basically ended as far as the biblical definition of apostle, if we see some charismatic speaker or some church or something and the leader of that calls themselves an apostle, that should cause us to maybe take a step back because that office, as we know it from the Bible, has, has come to an end. There are no people who have direct contact the way that the original apostles did with Jesus. So, so we, should, we, should, we should approach titles like that with trepidation, not just titles like apostle, titles like pastor. You should walk with trepidation in calling me your pastor, and I should walk with trepidation in accepting that title because there's a lot of weight to that title. And here's the thing with a title like pastor is only time will tell if people are deserving of such titles, okay? The fruit and time will tell. People can call themselves whatever they want, right? But time will tell if they are, are worthy of such a title. Another thing that Paul says is this, and this is very common from Paul. He says, grace to you and peace from God. And grace and peace are kind of the, uh, in essence, the, the message that Paul brings in all of his letters. Essentially summarizes the message of salvation that he's gonna be talking about. When one gives their life to Jesus Christ and is saved by grace through faith, peace is a natural byproduct of being, being saved by grace. So when we say we're saved, if you're in this room and you, you, you carry the, the, the title of Christian and, and we say that we're saved, if we're saved, we are saying that we walk in a relationship with Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. If we walk in a relationship with the Prince of Peace, naturally, right, logically, there should be evidence of peace in our life. Peace with God, peace with each other, and maybe this is the toughest one, peace with ourselves, and now if you're in this room this morning, you're like, I don't know if I've arrived yet. Okay, I don't think any of us have arrived yet. It's a process. And this is why Paul says this. Paul says, Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. 
So Jesus died on the cross, not just to save us for eternity, right? So we don't have to be eternally separated from Jesus forever, right? Jesus also saves us so there can be a change in our life in the present. It is Jesus's desire to not only save the lost from eternal damnation, but to shape you and I to live more like him. The fancy word for that, the churchy word for that is sanctification. And sanctification is essentially the evidence of salvation. What does that mean? That means if one has truly been saved by Jesus Christ, there will be evidence of walking in a relationship with God. There will be evidence of walking in the will of God and in the way of God, all right? But there were people coming in and they were distorting this message. And this is what Paul is going to address. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to what we've preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, and I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, a curse be on him. For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? Look at this last sentence. If I were still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Let me address something. In, in, in the Western world, specifically the United States, there is this hope, this dream of Christians in the Western world that one day society and culture will think we're cool. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And what Paul is saying right here is if I wanted to have people just like me all the time, I wouldn't be a Christian. Because what happens is Christianity runs perpendicular to pop culture. Perpendicular is like this, right? They collide. They don't run parallel, they run perpendicular. And so what Paul is saying is, if we want to be popular in the eyes of the world, being a Christian is not the way to go. And that's something that I think we need to remember, okay? So Paul was frustrated, he was angry. He was angry that the churches he helped to plant and, and grow were quickly turning from a relational view of Jesus, relational, right? Personal relationship with Jesus. They were turning from a relational view of Jesus to a legalistic and religious view of Jesus. So the Bible defines, that's a Bible right over there. The Bible defines how we are to live. What happens though is false teachers slip in and they add their amendments to the Bible on, you, on how you are to live and how you are to be saved. And what that results in is a nasty word called legalism. That's what happens. When we take our personal preferences and our ideas of morality and add them on top of God's, this becomes legalism. So here's what we're gonna talk about for a second. There are two extremes and both of them are bad and they're not biblical. Okay, the one extreme is the one I just said, legalism. And there's some of you in this room who are very familiar with legalism. That is adding the amendments to the word of God, adding man-made religious things onto the word of God. That's legalism. That's over here. That's bad. It's not biblical. On the other side of the extreme is what we're gonna call easy beliefism. The idea that all I do is just say that I believe in Jesus and I don't have to do anything else for the rest of my life. That's also not biblical and that's incorrect. Paul was being accused of this one. Paul was being accused by the legalists of saying that all we have to do is believe in Jesus and there is no change in our standard of living. That is absolutely not true. And if you read the other books of the Bible that Paul wrote, you know that Paul wrote probably some of the most uncomfortable things about how the Christian is to live and probably the most debated things by culture on how we are to live. So here's, what, here's kind of the crux of what we're talking about today. Legalism teaches that we are saved by what we do. We are saved by works. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches that we are saved by grace through faith. That means that we just surrender and we accept not our works, but Jesus's works. But it doesn't end there. Legalism says works save you. The gospel says you are saved, wait a second, for good works. That that is a natural byproduct. It is the evidence of salvation. People get all bent out of shape when Christians talk about works. Works are not the problem. It's the order in which we put works. Works come after salvation, not before salvation. Everyone loves to go, but Corey, have you never read uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? I'm saved by grace through faith. And I'm like, I have. Do you know what verse 10 says? It comes right after nine. It says that we are saved for good works. This is why James, the brother of Jesus Christ, said faith without works is dead. It's not, it's not real faith at all. Because real faith, real salvation produces evidence. It produces a work. Now, to be fair, easy beliefism is something that is often taught, especially in the American church. I'll dare say even especially in the southeastern part of America. That if I just know who Jesus is, I'm good. And a lot of people believe that and they teach that and it's not biblical. Mistakenly believing that simply knowing who Jesus is saves you is incorrect. How do we know that? Because Jesus, Jesus's brother James in James chapter two says, every devil in hell and Satan himself knows who Jesus is. They used to live together, right? They used to live in the same place until a third of them got kicked out with Lucifer. So they all know who Jesus is. They know the power of Jesus. They know that Jesus is the savior of mankind but they don't have a saving faith in him. They know who he is. They know his identity. Again, we are saved by grace through faith, but the response of faith, according to Jesus, is to pick up our cross and to then follow in his footsteps. And if we are not picking up that cross and following in his footsteps, I think it is safe to say that we have not accepted God's salvation through grace, because of our faith. And so simply knowing who Jesus is does not save our soul. And so Paul also says that some of you are turning to a different gospel and he goes, not that there is another gospel. What does he mean by that? He means the word gospel literally translates to good news. And the good news, the gospel, is that God has done the work for you. The good news is that God loves his people. He loves us so much. He graciously gave his son as a sacrifice for our salvation and for our restoration. And any other news apart from that, that says that we can somehow earn it, that it's up to us, that is not good news. That's not of God. Why? It is interesting to me. Every single ideology on planet earth, except for Christianity, teaches you that it is up to you to save yourself. Islam teaches this through works. Uh, Hinduism teaches this through works. Buddhism teaches this through works. Even secular humanism and atheism teaches it by works. If the planet's to be saved, you're gonna save it. If we're gonna be saved as a race, you're gonna have to save it. Like it's all up to us. And the reason why there is no other gospel except for the gospel of Christ is it is not good news to hear that it's up to us. That's not good news. I said this last week, we have not conquered death. We have not conquered sickness. We have not conquered hatred. We have not conquered poverty. We're incapable of conquering those things. So it's not good news to hear that it's all up to us. The only reason the true gospel is good news is because it's up to God to save us. Not, and that is good news. If you've been around humans at all, that's good news. And so Paul says, who am I trying to please here? So here's how legalism slips in the door, right? Legalism slips in the door when minors of the Bible, things that are not uh, uh, dependent on your salvation, minors in the Bible or personal preferences become majors. That's when legalism kicks in. And people and churches and denominations start requiring things of Christians that are not biblical. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you maybe don't know what I'm talking about. 
Um, my wife and I got saved in a denomination to where they thought you were not saved unless you had a specific gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of speaking in tongues. You're not saved at all unless you demonstrate that gift. That, that's not biblical. It's man, that's man pushing. It's man taking something from the Bible and elevating it to a place that it shouldn't be. Uh, there were other requirements mostly for women. Uh, women couldn't wear pants. They had to wear skirts. They couldn't wear makeup. They couldn't cut their hair. Men couldn't have beards, even though virtually every man in the Bible had one. Uh, men couldn't have long hair, things like that. There are all these things that they, pay, they put and they placed higher than they should be. That's when legalism creeps in. And what happens is it creates a culture, listen to me, it creates a culture to where Christians are more concerned with pleasing the pastor, the church, or the denomination than they are about pleasing God himself. And that's a problem. And it's a question of who are we trying to please? So first and foremost, that doesn't mean you shouldn't respect a pastor. It doesn't mean you shouldn't, if you're in it, we're not a part of a denomination. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with respecting history or, or certain customs or things like that. But first and foremost, we're to go to the word of God, we're to pray to God, and we're to listen to personal conviction. Listen, if you're a, room in this, if you're a, a, a woman in this room and God has personally convicted you to, to never wear jeans, but to wear skirts, that's between you and God. And, and you need to listen to that conviction. But we cannot take personal convictions and apply them as universal convictions over everyone else. That is legalism. That is legalism. And that is not something that we are meant to do. Okay? Last part. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and I came back to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. I declare in the sight of God, I'm not lying in what I write you. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I remained personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ. They simply kept hearing, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So in this section, what we see is, is there's a group of people, these, these false teachers that we've been kind of talking about a little bit today were called Judaizers. These were Jewish people who had become Christians. And when they had either heard or read that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't think that I came to abolish the law. When they heard that, these Judaizers, Judaizers believed Every new Christian from here on out has to adopt and live by the Old Testament laws. So to be fair, it's good to be fair. To be fair, you can see how they misconstrued Jesus's words. Okay, he says he didn't come to abolish the law. That means we have to keep doing all of the law. And you could see how they could maybe get confused by that. Maybe that's one of the reasons why Jesus called Peter was to resolve that confusion and then to take the truth out to non-Jews. Maybe that's why Paul was a piece of this whole puzzle. So when we talk about the law, a lot of people get confused. What is the law, right? Do we not follow anything in the Old Testament? Do we just throw it all away? What do we do with the Old Testament? So the Judaizers said Paul was wrong for omitting the law of Moses. The law of Moses is essentially the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. But Paul didn't omit everything from the Torah, the first five books. He taught exactly what Jesus taught. And Jesus told everyone, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. 
Now the law was comprised of three parts, okay? There was the ceremonial laws for the tabernacle, for the cleansing, for the worship ceremonies. There were the social laws, how they interacted in different scenarios in public. And then there were the moral laws, essentially the 10 commandments. Now the ceremonial and social laws all pointed towards the coming savior, Jesus. All the prophecies of the prophets pointed towards the coming savior, Jesus. So when Jesus came, the ceremonial laws and the social laws were fulfilled. They were done. Maybe even better to say he abolished them or ended them was he fulfilled them. He was the fulfillment of those laws, okay? So there's no need to observe those laws anymore. There's no need to clean your hands before you went into the temple because in the New Testament, we are the temple of God, right? Things like that. So those laws were done. The moral laws, on the other hand, the 10 commandments, they are eternal. Those principles have never stopped. They continue on to this day and they will continue on forever. Those those moral laws, the 10 commandments, right? Those go on forever and ever. So it gives you some clarity on what Jesus did with the law. So why are we to trust this guy, Paul? Imagine if you're Peter, imagine if you're James, the dude that tried to kill you and kill all your friends shows up and he goes, hey, I wanna be on your team now. And Jesus has told me some really cool stuff. You'd probably be like, "Mm, I don't know about this, right? How can we trust Paul? This guy wanted to kill us not too long ago. And now he's, he's getting revelations from Jesus and wants to take the gospel out to all the world. They, they, they were a little, little, seemed a little shady. So how are we to trust Paul today? The reason why they could trust Paul then and we can trust Paul now is everything Paul wrote about and taught was validated by the word of God. It was validated by Jesus's words. It was validated by the Old Testament prophecies. It was validated by the other authors of the New Testament. And here's something that I think is just amazing. What also validates all the things that Paul wrote and and, and wrote to us and wrote to these churches and told us how we are to live to honor Christ is all of Paul's teachings work on a practical level. What does that mean? This is very, very important. Sometimes people ask me, I don't know if anyone's ever asked you before, why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in God? And I have a lot of reasons why I believe in God, but I'm gonna tell you what has kept me clinging to my faith over the last 20 something years that I've been a Christian. What has kept me clinging to my faith is this. I've never seen God with my eyes. I have never audibly heard the voice of God, but I believe in him 100%. Why? Because the Bible, if we take the principles and teachings of the Bible, And if we apply them to our marriage, to how we raise our kids, how we handle our money, how we treat our neighbor, how we work at our office, if we apply them to everything in our life, every single principle of the word of God works. It works. And to me, it has to be divine that dozens of authors over hundreds of years could come together with a a compilation of books that we call the Bible and all of it is congruent and all of it works. It has to be something beyond humanity. It has to be divine. So essentially, Paul was put up against the word of God and it it stood the test. It passed the test. And so did his fruit and his teaching. So essentially, whenever we hear spiritual teaching, what do we do? We hold it up against this book. And if it doesn't align with this book, it's not of God. So I don't care how charismatic or how big a church is or whatever, they, I, don't know how many, I don't care how many YouTube followers person X has. If they say something and it can't be supported by the word of God, they're wrong, they're wrong. The other thing we will see is long-term fruit of those truths. So the Bible has to be our anchor. This has to be where we go to establish if something is right or something is wrong. This is where we run for our beliefs, for our spiritual decisions. So speaking of evidence and fruit, Paul also says, well, not only do all of my things align with Jesus, with the Old Testament prophecies, with the other writers of the New Testament, his life, his testimony, his testimony stood up of God's power to change and God's power and and, and God's uh, depth of grace. Paul was a zealous legalistic Pharisee Do you guys know the first person who ever died for Jesus's name died at the hands of Paul? Acts chapter seven, a guy named Stephen. 
He's getting stoned and the guy who organized the stoning, it says they gave all their coats to a young man named Saul. That was Paul. It was Paul who did that. Paul organized the first martyr, the first death of the, uh, of the first martyr. And so this same guy ends up becoming the prime example of Jesus's love and Jesus's truth. And because of his unique experiences, because of his unique background, God cho chose him to go take this gospel out virtually to the entire rest of the world. And so look at what Paul said. Paul said, after I got saved, I didn't immediately go to the church. I didn't immediately go to Jerusalem and consult with the other apostles. That's not what I did. He says, the first thing I did is I went straight to Jesus. I started talking to Jesus. I started studying the word of God. He says he did this for three years. Do you find it interesting that the other apostles also spent exactly three years with Jesus before he was crucified? Odd, right? After that three years, he went, he met Peter, he met James, he ended up meeting more of the apostles later on. And so what we learn from that is this, we need the church. This is important, guys. I'm really, really glad you're here. The Bible you know, blatantly says we need the assembling of ourselves together for accountability, for, for having mature people in our life that, that can help us and help us on our walk to hold us accountable. We need this. We need what we're doing right now. But the first place we always have to run is to Jesus. That needs to be our first response. Life throws a curveball at us. We run to God. We run to the word of God. And then we can run to our pastor. We can run to our friends. We can run to people for accountability in the community of the church. We need both. But first and foremost, we got to run to Christ first, okay? And that's what Paul did. And then the last thing he says in this chapter is he says, and then a lot of people, right? They start, the, the, the buzz got out. The word started getting out that the guy that used to kill a bunch of Christians is now teaching everyone about Jesus Christ. And it says a lot of people became Christians. They glorified God because of Paul. So again, the false teachers were saying, salvation came from laws. Salvation came from customs. Salvation came from works. Paul taught, no, 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 no. Salvation is a free gift from God received when we have faith in him. And so like Paul, if you're a Christian in here, like Paul, we are to be walking, living testimonies of the grace of God. We're to be walking, living testimonies of, of salvation, of love, of truth, of God's ability to change us. You need to tell people the story of your life, right? The ditch you used to be in. Last night, my... Last night, my wife and I are lying in bed. I'm getting ready to go to bed. You know, I'm lying there and she kind of gets next to me and she goes, you think it's crazy that you're a pastor? And I was like, uh, it's been like 15 years. Like, has the audacity of what we do for a living just now hit you after all these years? I mean, but our whole point was, is, is we used to be so lost, so lost and it's amazing. There are so many stories in this room. There's some of you that were drug addicts and cheaters and liars and abusers and awful people. And Paul writes in another one of the letters that he wrote, grace upon grace. Some of you know exactly what that means. Grace upon grace. And you know what? You need to tell some people about that because some people are stuck in ditches and they don't know how to get out. And it helps them to hear, hey, I used to be in the same ditch that you're in. You can get out of that. God can save you. God can change you. You just got to throw your hands up. You just got to surrender. Listen, how we live is evidence if we've been truly saved. Not only that, how we live is also the greatest magnet by which other people are attracted to Jesus Christ. How we live matters. It matters. So, we are saved by grace through faith and there is absolutely nothing you and I can do to earn it. We can't be good enough. We can't give away enough. We can't pray enough. We can't do anything. We cannot do anything to earn the salvation that God freely gives us. Now, what will happen is this. This is very important. Hear me this morning. People will distort the simplicity of that in one of two ways. 
They will either tell you that there is some kind of work that you have to perform in order to be saved. That's legalism. Wrong, okay? Or other people will say, man, just just repeat after me real quick and believe that Jesus is the son of God and everything's done. There's nothing else you have to do. Easy beliefism. That is the other extreme and that is also not biblically supported. That we can give our life to Jesus and nothing changes, right? Also not biblically supported. So to avoid those extremes, to avoid legalism, to avoid uh, apathy, to avoid false teaching, the best way to do that, what do we do? We go to the word of God. Not only do we go to the word of God, we pray. It can't just be one or the other. It has to be both of these things because there's a lot of people who pray, but they never read the word of God. And what happens is sometimes we can get hijacked by our emotions and we can think we are hearing something from God, but we're not hearing something from God. We're following our heart, which is dumb. I don't care what Disney tells you, it's dumb, right? Don't follow your heart. So if we are not reading the word of God and we're just praying, we may mistakenly hear God and do something in opposition to God. But if we think we hear something from God in prayer, we then take that to the word. And if the word affirms it, it's God. If it contradicts the word, it is not of God. Because the Holy Spirit of God and the word of God will never contradict. They will never contradict. God will not contradict himself, okay? So we also, to avoid these pitfalls, We have to focus on the majors of the scripture. What's a good example of a major? When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one gets to the Father except through me. What that means is a a major of the Christian faith is there is no universalism in Christianity. There's one pathway to an eternity with God, Jesus. That's it. That's a major. We hold on to things like that. There are also a lot of minors in the Bible, things that are not contingent on you going to heaven or hell. We can talk about those things, but we're not gonna fight about those things. We can talk about personal preference. Maybe you don't like our kind of music, that's fine. Maybe you don't like the way we dress at this church, that's fine, those are personal preferences. Those aren't heaven and hell things. But what happens is, is when we take the minors from the Bible or the personal preferences and we place them as majors, this is when legalism creeps in the door. This is when things start to go down the wrong direction and we need to avoid that. Another thing is this, we've said it a million times today. Let's say it a couple more times. Grace is free. Salvation is free. But that doesn't mean that it's cheap. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said this, died for his faith during World War II. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, we often make grace cheap. What that means is, is we accept this free gift from God to be saved. And we don't live in a way that honors the sacrifice that he made. If we claim to be Christians, listen to me this morning. If we claim to be Christians, we are claiming to at least have a rudimentary understanding that Jesus Christ, the son of God came down in flesh and was nailed to a hunk of wood for six hours for my sin. If I understand, at least rudimentally, understand that Jesus Christ died for my sin, was viciously beaten and killed because I had done evil things, what does it say about my faith if I continue to live in those evil things? I have forsaken this gracious gift. I have taken for granted what Christ has done for me. Our lives will be a reflection of understanding that we have been saved by grace, okay? And though salvation is free, the Christian life is sacrificial. I get a kick out of Christians, especially again in the Western world, in the United States, who are doing everything they can to avoid suffering. Suffering is part of Christianity. In fact, in Philippians, it says that suffering helps identify us with Jesus and that it's an honor for us to suffer for His namesake, it identifies us with him. So if you go to a church and they tell you that the Christian experience is easy, they're not reading from the same Bible that I am. It is sacrificial. It is a free gift of salvation, but this life is costly. This walk does, it does cause us and inspire us hopefully to sacrifice some things. So if we claim to be saved by grace through faith, here's where the rubber meets the road this morning, okay? There will be evidence of our salvation. 
What do I mean by that? So if I run into you for the first time in a coffee shop and you're like, oh, hey, Corey, what do you do for a living? I am, I, and I respond, I, I am an astronaut. And they're like, really? What is space like? Never been. Well, you must have a PhD in what, like, like astrophysics? Nope, never went to college. So there's no evidence. I can say I'm an astronaut, but I have no evidence to back up the claim that I'm an astronaut. Just like when a lot of people walk around the southeastern part of the United States and they say, I'm a Christian. And you say, well, but, but why, what, what evidence do you have to support the claim that you follow Christ? Uh, well, one time when I was 13, I said a prayer at a camp. That's not evidence. I'm sorry. Salvation is evident in the fact that we have a true love for God. Salvation is evident in the fact that when we sin, listen to me, that when we sin, we feel remorse about it and we repent to Jesus. Corey, you saying I'm gonna lose my salvation every time I sin? No, no, no. I'm saying that if you love your spiritual husband and you do something against him, you should feel bad about it and say you're sorry and you should turn away from it. Evidence of salvation is when we pray that we love other people, that we walk in humility, that we are growing spiritually. I like these last three. If we are saved, there will be a growing distance between us and the ideology of the world. The Bible mentions this several times. If we are saved, not that we will ever be completely free of ever sinning again, but there will be a decreasing of sin in our lives when we are saved. We will sin less and less and less and less. And simultaneously, there will be an increase of our obedience to the teachings of the Bible. These are evidences that we are Christians. Now, here's the important thing. Do any of those things I just showed you, do those things save us? Absolutely not. But they are evidence to the fact that we have been saved. They are natural byproducts of salvation. Like I said, legalism says, do some works and then you're saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, I'm gonna save you so you can do some works. We are saved to not just sit around and talk about how great we are in our little social enclaves that we call churches. That's not why we are saved by God's grace through faith. We are saved so we can go out into a dark, chaotic world and be the salt and the light of that world. That's why we are saved. So, some questions arise. Corey, why are we getting so heavy today? We're getting heavy today, guys, because this is eternity. It is time for the American church to stop being a place of entertainment and fun and games all the time and Christian nationalism and to start actually talking about heaven and hell. Anybody? If you just want entertainment, man, a Coldplay concert is better than this. If you're just looking for entertainment, but if you're looking for the knowledge that will change the direction of your eternity, that's what the church should be. That's what the church should be. So some questions arise. Are you and I showing the evidence that I had on that last slide? Are we showing the evidence of those things? If we are not showing the evidence of those things, I'm gonna ask you, and I'm not trying to be mean or judgmental. Are you comfortable and confident in the state of your eternal soul? If there is no evidence of you walking with Christ, are you confident in your eternal soul? Well, Corey, I you know, smoked meth, beat my wife, steal from everybody, but I prayed one time, repeated after a guy at a church service. I would say I'm not sure how sincere that was if there has been no change, if there is, do you know what Jesus said before you guys think I'm just a judgmental, awful person? Do you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. If one walks up to a tree and there are figs all over it and you ask the tree, what kind of a tree are you? And they say, I am an orange tree. Well, but there's figs all over you, but I'm an orange tree. We can look at the fruit of the tree and determine what kind of tree it is. So if one looks at me and I say I'm a Christian, but there is absolutely no fruit on me that demonstrates what I say, Jesus says you can judge a tree by its fruit. Are we confident in the state of our soul? Lastly, 
If we are not walking testimonies of being saved by God's grace through faith, how do we expect other people to glorify God? How do I expect my kids to glorify God if I don't glorify God in front of them? How do I expect my neighbors to ever know who Christ is if I don't demonstrate Christ when I'm around my neighbors? How, I, how do I expect the culture of my job to ever change if I am not being the salt and light in those environments? If you go into Matthew chapter five, that's the, that, that, that's the Sermon on the Mount. That is the first time that God directly spoke to humanity for 400 years. Between Malachi and Matthew, there was a 400 year span that they call the dark period. And it was a time when God did not directly speak to his people through prophets or anyone else. And the first time God clearly speaks to his people, it is God incarnate, Jesus Christ, on the side of a hill at the Sermon of the Mount. You know what the opening line is? You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. That's his opening line. That's his opening statement. What does that tell us? Are we saved by our works? No, we're saved by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. All we do is surrender to him. But why are we saved by his works? Listen to me. So we can then get to work. So we can then be about our father's business. And then we can love other people and share the truth with other people and demonstrate the fruits and the gifts and the principles and the knowledge of Christ. And that other people are affected and other people glorified God because of how we lived. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room this morning and maybe you do not have a relationship with Jesus, maybe you're searching, you're digging, you're looking, you got questions, I'm really, really glad you're here. You're, you're, you're welcome here. I'm so glad that you're here. If you have any questions, up here on my right, your left, is Pastor Amanda. She's our student pastor. If you have any questions for her, she'd be more than happy to talk with you. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage if you need prayer for anything in your life doesn't matter what it is, anything in your life, please let someone pray with you. And then lastly, all the way around this room, wherever you see a lamp on a table, and then the majority of the pillars in the middle of this room, there is bread and wine. And that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is how we are saved by grace through faith, that God sent his only son to, to die for a payment for our sin. And everyone is, we, we invite everyone to take communion. If you'd like to take it, we ask two things. One, you're welcome to take communion if you have asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin. The second thing we ask is just be respectful of other people if you decide not to do this. And Mitch will eventually dismiss us, okay? Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. Father, I pray that we, we, we take a little bit of an inventory of our life, God. We don't wanna be legalistic, God, but we also don't wanna be flippant about our faith. So Lord, I pray that we can be honest with ourselves, God, that we, that, that we would ask you to examine our hearts and our minds, God. We wanna be walking testimonies of your grace and of your love, Lord. We wanna honor you. We wanna bless other people. So God, keep your hand on our hearts, Lord. Keep your hand on everyone in this room. Keep us safe until we meet again, Lord. We thank you. We thank you for the blood that you shed on the cross, God. We thank you for your grace and mercy, Lord. We thank you, God, for loving us, God, and, and, and cleaning up our mess. And God, Lord, let us, let us live in that and be appreciative of that. We pray all these things in your son's name, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Love you so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.